Christ, we are covered by Christ's blood. We are covered by Christ's righteousness. It means no longer does God look on you in the same way He did before because your righteousness has been cast off and you are covered by the blood of the Lamb. If you be in Christ, if you are in Christ, you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. If you would open up your copy of God's Word, we are going to be once again into our study we've been in now for 2020, Living Sacrifice. So if you have your Bible, please open it up to the book of Romans, and we are going to finish up chapter 3 this morning. So Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. And they say this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom we put forward, excuse me, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by a law of faith? For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Please join me as we pray this morning. So there are just three points to today's message. Um, as usual, there's been one or two recently, but this morning there, there are three. And the first one is uh, very simple. It should be right on the tip of all of our noses. It should be something that we think of often when we think of theology. Sin is a universal condition. It's a universal condition. So Romans three twenty-one through 25 says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the truth that's before us all this morning is this. There is not one person who lives without sin. Not one Think about Ecclesiastes 7.20, which we read last week. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Think about that for just a second. I want you all to think with me for a second about a story that's told, an account that was told to us. In John, in chapter 8. Y'all remember this? Very, very clear. 
they had gathered together the woman who was caught in adultery. So by the law, this woman ought to be stoned. Jesus knelt down in the dirt and wrote with his finger in the sand. He said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. That's amazing. The amazing thing is because many people, many people want to pretend that they do not sin. There are religions out there. There are people who profess to be Christians who are definitely not Christians that believe in a sinless perfection in this day. Biblically, that is not coming. There is not a time in this life right now where sin will be missing from us or where somehow we'll be so distanced from sin that we do not contaminate the things that we touch anymore. Our goal as Christians should be every single day to sin less and less. Our goal should be not to sin at all, but that does not mean that's going to happen. Biblically, it doesn't happen. We already read in Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Does not happen. The leaders should have been those that were an example to the Jews on how to live. As a matter of fact, they thought they were an example to the Jews on how to live. The Jews thought they were an example to the Jews on how to live. Remember that excellent quote, that excellent quote, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. Remember Jesus said that. That would have been a death sentence on the ears of his hearers. Oh no, if the scribes and the Pharisees aren't righteous, then who can be righteous? Exactly. Exactly. There is none that is righteous. We read that last week. But many people want to pretend that they do not sin. They want to pretend they live in this world where they are sinless perfection and do not sin. But the truth of Scripture, it just screams into every single one of these contexts when we have this conversation and says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, if there is no truth in you, that means there are only lies, which means you are not a truthful person, but a liar. So if we say we live without sin, the truth is, actually, no, you don't. No, we do live with sin every single day. Sin is a universal condition. How? Well, if any of you were here during the conference back in February... Tim had brought to our attention uh, the New England Primer, if you all remember that. Some people, some people bought it. It was the principal textbook for millions of colonists and early Americans, uh, first compiled and published about 1688 by Benjamin Harris. It was called the New England Primer, and it looked a little bit like this. Some of you purchased it. And if you look at that line there below the letter A, remember in teaching the children the alphabet, they also wanted to teach them theology. What do you see there? In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Let's put that up before everyone. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. So what exactly does that mean? Well, think about it for a second like this. Biblically speaking, there are only two identities for humanity. So today we live in a world that's very individualistic. We live in a world where I do what I want to do, you do what you want to do, and um, my world won't spill over into yours. We know that biblically speaking, this does not work. No man lives on an island. All of our worldviews will spill into one another's. We will bump against one another. This is just the way that life is. So 
we're really not quite as individualistic as we say we are or think we are. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, no, you fall into one of two categories and only two categories, one of two identities. What are those identities? If you look in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 21, it says this, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall all be made alive. So see what's being said here. Here are the two identities. There are those who were born in Adam and those who are reborn into Christ. This is repeated again in a chapter we're going to be in in just a few weeks, Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here's the truth, all right? There are exactly two identities for us. You can either be in Adam or in Christ, all right? So all humanity is either in Adam or in Christ. There's not a third option. Well, I'm Jason. Yes, yes, that's your personal identity. It's important to God. Yes, but you are either in Adam or in Christ. We are born in Adam. All of us. There is not one baby that does not come out and take its first breath being born into the identity of Adam. This is known as the doctrine of original sin. There are some Christian churches that deny this. They believe that sin is, is totally the uh, choice of the person, which it is the choice of the person, but they also believe that we weren't born with a sin nature. They believe that we make the choice to sin, but we can also make the choice never to sin. This is unbiblical. We've already read that does not happen. It is untrue. So original sin needs to be defined so we can kind of understand that just a little bit. So let's just explore for just a second this idea. So sin wasn't originally in the world. Everyone understand that? Sin wasn't originally here. When God was evaluating creation as it was coming about, God said, it is good, it is good, it is good. The world at that point was free of sin, but it was not free of the potential of sin because God created us as free agents. And what that means is you and I can make choices that are important. So um, if a person decides to go out and rob a grocery store, God may be able to use that down the road some way to bring glory to his name. As a matter of fact, he will But God did not foreordain that person to rob the grocery store. That's wrong thinking. So if someone walks out into the street and murders someone, that that wasn't God's plan. God didn't want you to go out and murder someone, but he can use that because he's sovereign. So when we make choices, they are important. Understand this. Sin wasn't originally in the world. God did not create Adam and Eve as robots. This is the question that's asked to theists all the time. If God is so good, why didn't he just create us without the capacity to sin? Well, to create someone without the capacity to sin, let's just say that God decided to do that, would mean that we are robots, that God is playing a cosmic chess game, which he's not. That's simply not the case. Let's bring this down for a second into real-world terminology, all right? So let's say, ladies, that there's a guy out there, and uh, you know you are you are unmarried, and uh, you know you are you are free, and there's a guy out there that is pursuing you, and he writes you a love letter, and it's wonderful, 
and you look at it and you're like, wow, this is really nice. I haven't had this attention paid to me like this. Wow, he's kind of cute, whatever. And then along comes another love letter. And you say, wow, this guy really seems to, to like me. This is really, really nice. And then all of a sudden comes an entire trunk full of letters. And you're like, okay, so this is kind of creepy. I'm going to send him back a letter and say thanks, but no thanks. So you do just that. And then the next thing you know, he's knocking on your door. He says, you're, you're my wife now. You're my wife now. Do you understand that this is the way a lot of people see God? That we are not free agents. We just do whatever he wants us to do all the time, and our choices do not matter. This is not the way that it is, all right? We choose what we will do. God has made us free agents. So you say, why doesn't God just save everyone? Because everyone has been given a choice. And God loves every single person that he's created too much to force them to love him. Let me say that one more time. God loves every human being he has created too much to force them to love him. So If you don't want to love God, God's not going to force you to do that. We are called to love God. We are called to image God, and many people do not do that. They don't want to do that. That's a choice they've made. God has said that they don't have to. You choose to live in Adam or live in Christ. God makes provision for that, and God is sovereign. Understand me when I'm saying all of a sudden people are like, oh, he's heretical. Now he's saying all kinds of choice things. No. God is sovereign over all. Whatever the end game is, God has in mind, that's going to happen no matter what you and I do. And choices are important, and he gives those to us. He's created us as free agents. He created Adam and Eve as free moral agents. He created them like him with the capacity to be able to choose, and they chose wrongly. Sin wasn't originally in the world, but Adam made the choice to sin, and in that choice brought sin into the world. God told him exactly what was going to happen, and he went ahead and did what he wanted to anyway. In theology, Adam is what is known as our federal head. And uh, basically that means this. He acted on behalf of humanity as our representative. And some people say, that's not fair. I didn't give him that choice. We live out these same principles today in America. We have a representative democracy, okay? We live in a republic where we are represented by leaders that we put in place. We choose them to represent us. So break that down to the local level. We have people in our district that go out and represent us to the next level of government. They are people that we choose to put in that position. They are our representative. Sometimes they make good choices. Sometimes they make bad choices. And as our representatives, those choices affect us. Adam was the representative for all humanity. And he made a choice. He made a choice as our representative. And now that's come on all of us. So all humanity is either in Adam or in Christ. Say, wow. So the road is a lot more narrow than I thought it was. Yes, it is. Listen, point number two, Christ's sacrifice fully satisfies God's wrath. Fully. Look at Romans 3, verses 21 through 25. It says this, But now... 
the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Where has it been manifested? Apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So again, throw this up here. This is important. All humanity is either in Adam or in Christ. In Adam, there is death. In Christ, there is life. So, Typically, whenever we're having theological conversations like this, people will ask the question, why? Why is it that in Adam, in my, in my condition, in my identity, in Adam, why is it that it's death? Why can't I have life there also? Friends, many people want to remain in Adam and also avoid death. When you come face to face with your own mortality, there is fear. We know deep within ourselves that there will be an answer for every word that we speak. Some people want to deny that. That's their choice. That's their choice. So, why? Why is it that in Adam there is death and only in Christ there is life? Because the payment due for sin is life. Because the payment due for sin is life. Say, well, wait a minute. I thought the scripture says the wages of sin are death. They are. They are. You see, the Jews knew very well what the law said when it was being preached to them, they knew. They had grown up under the Torah. They knew the scriptures. They knew what was required of them to live rightly with God. And the passage goes on to say, and it's true, in Romans 6, the wages of sin are death. Death. So when you see that picture of the lamb on the altar, this is what sin gets us. Because sin needs to be atoned for. A holy and righteous God cannot endure solemn assembly and iniquity. He cannot endure us to stand before him as dirty, as unrighteous. He can't because he's holy. It would go against his character. Romans 3, 23-25 says this so clearly. For all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I want you to notice several things here, several important truths that we need to take away from this short little section. Point number one is God's great love for humanity. Why? He himself provided the sacrifice. He himself 
provided the sacrifice. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Understand, you and I cannot find a sacrifice that will cover all of our sin. But God, in his righteousness, in his great love, in his mercy for humanity, whom he loves, he has put forth the sacrifice that we might be made right with him. Notice also, not only his great love for us in that he provided the sacrifice, notice also God's ability to fully and legally clear the guilty. Notice, it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This needs a little bit of explanation. You see, God is able to fully and legally clear the guilty. Why? Because payment has been made. What did he not do? He did not turn a blind eye to our sins. We need to get that out of our head. God didn't all of a sudden say, oh, the Old Testament didn't work. I have an idea. That's not the way that it works. God cannot turn his head away from our sin. He knows what we've done. He knows the intent of our hearts. Yet so great is his love for us that he provides his son as a propitiation, as a sacrifice, as a perfect sacrifice, as the perfect sacrifice that can and is able to stand in our place and, in fact, does. So he did not turn a blind eye to our sins. What did he do? He dealt with our sins in accordance with the law. Understand, no laws were broken. None. So God isn't the judge that all of a sudden says, well, maybe we can go lesser on your sentence because of this. No, no. We broke the law, we broke the law, we have to pay. That's all there is to it. So how does God deal with it? God deals with it by paying the penalty himself. In accordance with the law, the Jews would have known exactly what was required. They knew the Messiah to expect, but they wanted a different one. Many people in the United States today want a different Messiah. But I need everyone to understand this morning as we're looking at this passage, yes, sin had to be dealt with. God did not turn a blind eye. What did he do? He dealt with our sins in accordance with his law. He did not go against his holy nature, but rather acted in accordance with his holiness. And that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. God did not all of a sudden just throw all the sins off and say, okay, clean record, like some people want to do with their nation's debt. It doesn't work. God dealt with our sins one nail at a time. His son's blood was poured out for us that Jesus Christ might be our propitiation, stand in our place to pay our penalty. Why? So that we might know him not only as God, but as Father. So there's a lot of misunderstandings about the gospel and about its application. Okay, Jason, I understand. I've sinned and God has done something. How do I get it? How do I get it? Well, his merit is applied only one way. One way. By faith alone. I want everyone to notice that this atonement was a demonstration 
of his righteousness. It was a demonstration of his righteousness. Look at what Romans 3, 25-26 says. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Back up for just a second. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, those with student loans know what that's all about, he passed over former sins. Passed over. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Why don't you look again? Look one more time at these verses. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. This is meant to draw our attention toward a very specific event in human history. You all remember this? The death angel came through Egypt. There was a distinction that was made. Those that belonged to God and those that did not. I want everyone to understand how beautiful an illustration this is because Christ's blood causes God to pass over our sin. To pass over our sin. Because you and I, if we be in Christ, we are covered by Christ's blood. We are covered by Christ's righteousness. It means no longer does God look on you in the same way he did before because your righteousness has been cast off and you are covered by the blood of the Lamb. If you be in Christ, if you are in Christ, you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. There's no more sacrifice that needs to be paid. It has been paid. But it is only applied by faith. Only applied by faith. Say, what? This doesn't make any sense. All I need to do is believe. Romans 3, 25-26, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is totally and completely just. He fulfilled the law on behalf of broken humanity so that we might be part of his family. Understand that salvation is not just a later thing. It's also a now thing. He, he alone is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He provided this for us. He did. All right, Al, everybody. You know where this is. You've seen this. Just absolutely stunning. Stunning picture. It's beautiful. Now, just think about how breathtaking this is to stand here for just a couple seconds. Wow. Look at that. Anybody remember this guy, Charles Blondin? He's a pretty cool guy. Summer of 1859, he walked 160 feet above the falls several times back and forth between Canada and the United States as huge crowds gathered on both sides and looked in shock and awe. Once he crossed in a sack, once on stilts, another time on a bicycle. Once he even carried a stove and cooked an omelet. On July 15th, Bludden walked backward across the tightrope to Canada and returned pushing a wheelbarrow. The Blondin story is told that after he was pushing a wheelbarrow across while blindfolded, that he asks for some 
audience participation. The crowd had watched and oohed and awed. He had proven that he could do it. Of that, there could be no doubt. But now, he was asking for a volunteer to get into the wheelbarrow and take a ride across the falls with him. So it's said that he asked his audience, do you believe I can carry a person across in this wheelbarrow? And what do you think they said? Yes, we believe. We believe. Who will get in the wheelbarrow? No one. No one would get in. Say, wow. Pretty crazy. See, they all knew he could do it. But none of them wanted any part of getting into the wheelbarrow and going across with him. Why? Well, it feels safe and secure for us to try and good our way to heaven. Just like those people standing on the sides of Niagara Falls, we can look and we can see this miraculous feat. We can believe that he can do it, but it's just easier for us to keep our feet planted here and just good our way there, though we know it will not work. Hell will be filled with good people by their own standard, by the world's standard. Hell will be full of people who never murdered, never raped, never stole. Full of these people. Because you cannot good your way to heaven. But our faith must be taken out of our goodness and placed fully in the work of Jesus. Okay, so this isn't some ancillary, like, I, I kind of believe. No, you, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There is no in-between. And our faith must be taken out of our goodness, out of the things we can do to appease God's wrath, taken out of that and placed fully and completely and totally in Christ Jesus. It is the exclusivity of the gospel. One way. So don't come with your fig leaves of self-righteousness thinking you can cover the shame because we can't. We can't do it. No. No, we, we come with our filth and our helplessness for a cleansing at Calvary's tide. You see signs up on churches all over the place that say no perfect people here. And boy, it's so true. But I wonder how many people that walk into those doors, truly believe that. I heard a story told by A.W. Tozer a few years ago. It was recorded back in the 50s. He was talking to um, his congregation, and he said that he knew a man who was so humble, and he only talked about how humble he was. He said, oh, pastor, oh, brother, I am a worm and not a man. Tozer said, no, you don't believe that. The man said, oh, yes, I do. I am a worm and not a man. Tozer said, you don't believe that. He said something to the effect of, oh, I'm so lowly. I'm a worm and not a man. Tozer said, no, you do not believe that. He said, yes, yes, I do. He said, no, you do not. Because if you go home and your wife tells you you are a worm and not a man, you will argue with her over it. You don't believe it. Not true to you. Not because we all have these glasses where we look on ourselves. And even if we want to be seen as humble, even if we want to be seen as, as lowly, the truth is, not really. 
We want to be seen as perfect and good and spotless and the person that never does anything wrong, never you know, drops a swear word in a conversation, you know, never you know, pushes the gas pedal just a little bit beyond 55 in the 55. We want to make sure that we're the person that's always seen as right and that is not who God wants. Many people will come to me that day saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. God doesn't want perfect people. I want you all to just think for a second about that beautiful hymn, that beautiful verse. We're going to sing that hymn together in just a couple seconds. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This is a guy who gets it. All right, this writer gets it. I have no righteousness of my own, just sinfulness. And I need to depend totally and fully and completely on what Jesus Christ can do and nothing else. Nothing else will work. By works of the law will no man be justified. Then fine, I abandon works. I'll come broken, I'll come bloodied, I'll come crawling, I will come to the cross, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. It is only by his righteousness that we can be justified. This is pulling out the rug, people. The rug that we stand on of our own self-righteousness, it's, it's pulling it out. It's helping us to see the truth biblically. Let's look on ourselves as we truly are and rest in the saving grace of our Savior. Rest in the blood that was poured out for us and rest in the peace that he gives to us, the peace, perfect peace that he leaves to us in a relationship with him.